Want to start your own podcast? Anchor makes it super easy. Here's what you need to know about Anchor. Most importantly, it's free. Second, there are tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor distributes your podcast to numerous platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. You can make money from your podcast with minimum listenership, and it's everything you need to make a quality podcast all in one place. So what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app or visit anchor.fm to get started. Morgan Limo is the founder and principal consultant at Molo Global Consulting LLC. Here, she guides the preparation and review of quality written products, including published literary works. She is a mother, author, and a career international development professional, leading efforts to address complex development challenges through guiding related program design, budgeting, monitoring and evaluation, and learning. Morgan, welcome to the show. So welcome back to another WTF podcast episode. And it's my pleasure to have Morgan Limo on the line um, talking about her global consulting business. So Morgan, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you guys for having me. This is awesome. Hi, Morgan. Hello. So, um, Morgan, I, I know you very well, um, but for our audience, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey and the genesis for starting your new enterprise. Sure. So, as you said, I'm Morgan Limo. I am a very proud Chicagoan. I'm originally from Chicago, Illinois. By way Is there of anyone Washington. from Chicago who's not a proud Chicagoan? I've never met one. No, because we would disown them if that was the case. Um, You must be proud of your city. I love pizza, deep dish only. I love hot dogs. I'm a total Chicagoan through and through. Um, But I've been living in the D.C. area for a while, so I'm also kind of a Marylander, um, and I claim Maryland as my home. Uh, So by way of D.C., I'm a Chicagoan. Um, In terms of just like if I had to describe myself, I'm a wife, I'm a mom, I have two little girls, Um, I'm an author, I'm an international development professional, I work in public service for the U.S. government, and as you've indicated, I'm a business owner. Um, I run a business called Molo Global Consulting, LLC. In terms of just the story for how I got here, um, I mean, I, I went to school, like most people, I studied political science and national affairs with a minor in French, and I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, go Illini. And then I also did, besides my undergrad and grad that I did there, I also did another graduate degree at Princeton in public policy in the new Princeton School of Public International Affairs. I don't know if you guys heard this brilliant news, but they removed the name of Woodrow Wilson 
from the School of Public and International Affairs. So I was very excited about that because anyone who knows the legacy of Woodrow Wilson knows that he actually segregated the federal government. And as a student of public service and as a government employee, it was always kind of conflicting to say, I went to the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. So now it's just called the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Now they need to change Um, the name of the Woodrow Wilson Center. How about that? (laughs) There you go. So I hope that there will be a domino effect that takes shape for other places. But I mean, a lot of students and a lot of affinity groups really fought for that. And so it's really exciting to see that happening um, and that people are really recognizing like the need to change the names of some of these places. Um, After I, you know, finished with my schooling, I worked in legislative affairs. I was on the Hill briefly at the State Department uh, in their Bureau for International Organization Affairs. And I also have worked with USDA, Department of Agriculture, and the Foreign Ag Service, um, as well as with USAID, which is where I'm currently working for my day job. Um, In terms of just how I found my way into this business, it's actually, it's kind of interesting, but I really realized that I had kind of already been doing it. So I think, you know, in my grad school days, even somewhat in my undergrad days, um, I did so many like research papers and projects and, you know, those group projects where you're like the most active contributor. I felt like I was always that. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> COVID- can that you, I can see that for you. I you're the type of person I like to be in the group with. Like, yeah, incredibly organized. <laughs> exactly. Organized. I feel like I like things a certain kind of way. And so I was just always that person. Even now with like the whole COVID-19, everything that's happening, a lot of people are like, this is a group project and we're failing because people don't want to wear their masks and people don't want to participate in this group project. Um, but I faithfully I wear my masks. <laughs> I'm a faithful macro myself too. I play no games. Exactly. Nobody has time for COVID-19. So for me, I always have been kind of like in the lead on these types of things. My friends, colleagues, mentees, even frankly, some of my mentors have always just asked me to like read their papers or their CVs, critique them, edit them, help them with different job applications. Uh, For those of you who are familiar with USA Jobs, which is the federal government, hiring system. Anybody who has applied there knows that it's an art, not a science to do it's those. It's a black hole is what it is. <laughs> it, it can be, but if you know how to write, you know, if you know how to write those knowledge, skills, and abilities, you can actually get through. And so I had just always done really well at that and helped my friends do those things. So one day I was discussing this with a couple of my friends. Uh, hey, Julian. Hey, Kia. Um, about their businesses. And they were just really encouraging me to start mine because even though I had been doing it, I really hadn't monetized it at all. Um, I found I was doing it mostly as favors for people, frankly. Um, But as people started to share, oh, talk to Morgan about this, talk to her about this, it started eating more and more into my free time. Um, But I also saw some success, right? So I had, you know, friends who were getting accepted to prestigious fellowships. Um, even recently, one of my mentees just got accepted for the Boren Fellowship, and I edited her essays. Hey, and fellow she was just, Boren! And she was so excited and just grateful for having like a critical eye on her 
essays, right? And so that showed me that something was obviously working. Um, and it just made sense to take it to a different level, find other like-minded editors, proofreaders, and make a business out of it. So that's sort of how I got into the editing, proofreading side of things. Um, but we also do publishing. And so on the publishing side, I must say that I've always enjoyed reading since I was a kid. But I think that being a mom really illuminated for me the need to do publishing because I wasn't just looking for books for myself anymore, but I was looking for them for my kids. And it's only then when I realized that there's really not enough books out there, uh, particularly that have Black characters, Black children, Black girls in my case, that just show them like doing cool stuff, just being great, you know, loving themselves, shining, sparkling. Um, and so I really wanted to contribute to that, not just through my own work, but I also wanted to be able to support others in their publishing journey, whether through digital or through print. I love this. That's awesome. Yeah. Where we realized that we already have the seeds. Like we were just doing things and like, hey, here's an opportunity. I'm already I know. It. I don't have to learn anything new. <laughs> just do what I naturally do well. Um, I feel like yeah, it was really just the best touch of yeah. Go ahead. It was Martin. really just structuring it, as you said, like mm -hmm. just putting some structure around something that I was already doing, and and monetizing it and making it it work for me. Awesome. So Molo focuses on writing, editing publishing and content management services, what types of projects epitomize the Molo philosophy? What is the Molo philosophy? Hmm. I, I like that question. I think I would say that I'm really interested in telling diverse stories from a global perspective. And I don't know, what do I mean by that? It's really just that there's a lot of stories that never get told. And so we're in the business of trying to put those out into the world. Um, I actually have a really good friend who is a retired USAID foreign service officer. And when you just talk to her about her life, she's lived in the most amazing places. She's done amazing things. And her, myself and others have been really like pushing her to do a memoir. <laughs> and I was like, we want to publish that. Like, that's the kind of thing that we would love to publish, like telling those really interesting, nuanced stories and being able to control the narrative, which I think is really important. On the editing side, I think we're just really interested in helping people show their best selves through writing. We often get a lot of clients that they can't really figure out like what the right words are. Let's say it's for a resume or CV, like how to describe the work that they do. You know, it sounds really bland. You know, maybe they contributed to something major, but the way that they've described it is pretty, you know, basic and it doesn't really resonate. So we really try to help people like put their best foot forward, even for our book clients. You know, if you're trying to figure out what's that right turn of phrase for like a rhyming book for kids, maybe, or does the plot of your novel make sense? Um, and so I think we just try to help people use their writing to make themselves more marketable, to make their documents more, their documents rather more competitive. And so I think that's something that we we really like to do. Um, one point just on competition, there are a lot of editors out there 
And I like to think that we're a bit different because we also bring a global perspective to what we do. So we're not reading and just thinking about sort of what resonates for like this really narrow, small segment of, of a society, but we have consultants that are based around the globe. So we have folks that are in the States, in the UK, India, Nigeria, Cameroon, uh, Uganda, et cetera. So we really have a global set of eyes that are looking at any given document. And we've also like deliberately curated a blend of expertise, including folks that have really robust policy, finance, economic experience, public health experience, et cetera, so that we're not just, you know, copy editing, you know, for grammar and punctuation, but we can actually provide really thoughtful technical editing that demonstrates understanding of a particular sector in which someone may work, as well as understands the audience for a particular document. So I would say that's how we're a bit unique. That's a very interesting point and a very clear value proposition because you're right. Um, It does matter in terms of where your clients are based and what, because sometimes there are certain different rules around what people are looking for and how documents are structured and how they're presented that need to be aligned with Um, that market that you're in and just a general sort of copy editor wouldn't be able to do that if they don't understand that local context. So that's a really, really great uh, value proposition and market differentiator that you bring as opposed to other similar types of businesses that are in the market. And I've heard that a lot from our clients. We recently had a resume client that was working in the global health industry and she's like, I tried a bunch of different HR services, resume writing services, and different consultancies that provide that service, but they don't know anything about global health. (laughs) And so when I was trying to explain, you know, my expertise in family planning or maternal child health, like they just didn't get it. They didn't know how to make it resonate for the organizations that I was, she was interested to apply to. Um, And so she found it very refreshing that I said, okay, well, I'll give that to one of our consultants um, who's based in Cameroon that does public health interventions and she can review it for you. She can make sure that those right buzzwords are in there and that it really resonates for the hiring managers at your particular organization. So I think that's something that the clients have also expressed that they really appreciate. It's fantastic, Morgan. I I can think of a number of people who desperately need this service. So um, yeah, this is fantastic, definitely. Um, so in the same vein, your company is based in Maryland, um, but you currently reside in East Africa as a member of the diplomatic corps. Can you sort of walk us through, you mentioned that you sort of sat with two friends and, you know, were prompted to start the business, but from that moment to, you know, actually going live, can you can you talk us through that process and some of the things that you thought about when starting a global consultancy? And then um, conversely, can you talk about how you decided to sort of fund your first initial offerings and um, just some thoughts about juggling, you know, a, an enterprise or starting an, um, an effort like this and having a full time job at the same time? Ooh, lots of questions. Yes, I, can I know. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a mouthful. 
Um, I'll start with the the overseas bit. So yes, as you mentioned, I'm currently based in Uganda and East Africa um, as a diplomat and development professional. Um, so yes, my day job is to work with USAID. I design development programs, I manage budgets, and and I lead monitoring and evaluation efforts here for just north of $400 million portfolio. Um, that means I'm very busy <laughs> and it's it's a bit challenging to kind of juggle everything, um, but I'll start with just sort of the process for starting the business. Um, and I wanna give a, a shout out to one of your previous guests, Daniel Karoma, um, because I'm registered in Montgomery County and was so pleased to hear his tidbits about women owned and black owned businesses in MoCo because I'm one of them. <laughs> Shout out. But I I started my business from abroad and I registered in Maryland mainly because that's my home when I'm not overseas. Um, The good thing about the industry that I'm in is that a lot of the work can be done remotely. You know, document document review, et cetera, is more or less electronic these days. So it's actually a really great remote business. And for someone who has a very transient lifestyle, like mine. Um, I've been here for just under a year, but I was last in Guinea Conakry uh, working in our office that services Guinea and Sierra Leone. And so by the nature of me moving around a lot, um, I needed something that you could do from a distance. And so this was great for that. As far as the like nuts and bolts go, um, registering the business and everything online was actually pretty simple. That, that MoCo business portal is great. Um, and so getting registered with like the Department of Assessments and Taxation, all of that was pretty easy. And there's a lot of resources available for people who want to start businesses in MoCo. Um, getting some of the financials together, payment systems, bank accounts, it was actually less easy than I thought it would be. Um, a lot of the big commercial banks actually still require you to come in person to register your business accounts, which I could not do because I was not stateside. Um, I guess I had just thought that, you know, by now that's something that could easily be done online. But um, more surprisingly, I can give a good example from Google. Um, If you've ever seen a company that has like a Google business page, you have to claim your page. And so we went to claim our page for Molo Global Consulting and went through a bunch of questions And when you got to the end, it said, okay, well, we're going to mail you this paper postcard. (laughs) And then you send us the details on this paper postcard to verify your address. And I was like, how ironic is it? (laughs) Exactly. How ironic is it that a major tech company still requires a paper mail process? I mean, how? Are they sending it by carrier pigeon? I'm confused. (laughs) This is crazy. It's crazy. And that, so those are the types of things that I just didn't expect. And so honestly, till now, I still haven't been able to do it um, because I can't get snail mail, um, you know, to my business address. So that was definitely something that was challenging. Um, I was fortunate to be able to be stateside sort of right before the COVID-19 stuff came to be. And so for the things that had to be handled stateside, I was able to do those when I was there. But I thought that in this day and age, it would be much easier to start a company online, get everything together. Um, But again, just being in a foreign country, 
you know, I would get to certain websites and it would be like, your IP address is not allowed. You're blocked because I'm on a Ugandan IP. (laughs) And so I'd have to like VPN it or do something to be able to get access to that particular site. Um, But ultimately, I was able to navigate it and get everything set up that I wanted to get set up. Um, Uh But in terms of thinking about just like starting the business, honestly, I really first wanted to just start a publishing house. I didn't want to do the document review and editing um, and proofreading. But for reasons that I'll explain when I get to the financials, it really just didn't make sense. (laughs) And so I thought about uh, how can we service authors more holistically and what are the types of services that authors need, um, which is often editing, illustrating, book formatting, those sorts of things. So then I also thought about on a global level, I mean, everybody has documents. And so what are those documents that everyone has? Things like CVs, resumes, everyone uses them. Um, And they're pretty universally needed, even though the styles are different, as Michelle alluded to, the styles are different and they're not necessarily the same place by place or even even for a particular organization, it can change. Um, So those are universally needed. We provide support to edit things like LinkedIn profiles. Again, a lot of people are increasingly using those. And then just any organizational documents, manuals, tools, we provide edits for those types of things. We've supported funding applications, translations, et cetera. Um, so there's just there's a set of documents that everyone in the world has to use. And so we really just try to strategically think about what are those and how can we build the expertise to be able to review those meaningfully. What, when it comes to the finance side, um, like, a, like a lot of startups, I joined a partnership. My husband and I are co-owners of the business. And so we both put in initial capital just to get the business set up. I would say that for the editing side, the good thing is that a lot of the startup costs are relatively low. You know, you need to get a computer, set up a web page, uh, get some different editing software, set up your social media, et cetera. And so, you know, the, the costs are pretty simple. And then even just the business proposition is pretty simple. You know, we get documents, we charge you, we pay a consultant to do the work, and you make a profit. Where it gets complicated is on the publishing side. And so not only do you have to pay for upfront costs, we actually had to register for a doing business as for our imprints. Um, We also operate as Molo Global Publishing for our book clients. And so you also have to buy what they call international standard book numbers or ISBNs. You have to get barcodes, copyright information, et cetera. And so there's a lot more upfront costs on the publishing side. If you'll allow me, I would love to kind of walk you through just sort of what the balance sheet looks like for the publishing side, because I don't think a lot of people realize how much it costs. Hmm. Yeah, I'd love this. Demystify us, please. Yes. (laughs) Sure. So... Publication can be very expensive because you have a lot of upfront pre-pub costs or pre-publication costs. Um, That includes editing, proofreading, book layout, cover design, formatting for 
the different types of books, the paperback, hardcover, or ebook. It also requires software, subscriptions, um, you know, the Adobe's of the world, InDesign's, those sorts of things. Um, then you also have the cost of printing. And it's been a little bit more equitable in recent times because there's a lot of print-on-demand services now. Uh, Amazon has an, uh, Kindle Direct Publishing, which a lot of folks use. There's Ingram Spark. There's Draft to Digital. There's a whole lot of different companies that do print-on-demand services. And that basically just means that instead of having to buy a bunch of inventory of books, you only print them as their purchase. So you upload your book to the particular system, and then as people buy them, they'll print them one at a time. The problem with that is that the services are not cheap. Um, they charge you for each print. So if you have a book that sells for, let's say, $10, and it's a full-color you know, children's book that has lots of photos and, and graphics, it may cost you know, $4 to print. <laughs> and so then you're already at six bucks um, that you can potentially get as royalties. And that doesn't include the royalties that these publishers take. So Amazon might take another $2. And so now you're at $4 profit for a book that sells for 10. And so if you are able to print through a regular printer, a lot of publishers are actually now choosing to print overseas uh, where it's cheaper, then you are, you're sort of at a disadvantage through the print-on-demand services. But that's a really big upfront cost. You either have to buy, you know, a thousand books at $2 a print, um, or you have to do the print-on-demand where you're cutting really, really into your profits. On top of that- and I have a go question ahead. real quick. Hold, go hold ahead. your thought. Why sure. would someone choose to do print on demand based on what you just said in terms of the cost feasibility-ness, um, it being more expensive to do that? Why would someone make that choice? And you can finish what you're saying and then maybe come back to that. No problem. I, I can touch on that now in that a lot of people choose to do it because it it saves you cost in other ways. You don't have to pay for warehousing, for example. So if you are a publisher like me and you have a lot of different books, you don't necessarily want to have to pay for storage of 2,000 copies of every client's book. <laughs> if you are an independent author, you may also not have, not have enough understanding of the market to know how many copies of your book are going to sell. And so a lot of times what happens is authors will say, you know, I'll buy a thousand copies and they may only sell a hundred. And so what do you do with that excess inventory? Um, there are some things that people do. People will donate them, they'll give to libraries, et cetera, but that's eating into your profit margin. Um, so I think the print on demand is, is attractive for people who don't necessarily know how big their market is going to be, that they kind of want to test the waters. They want to see how well their book will sell. And then you can always switch to the traditional printing afterwards, but it's, a, it's really risky just to buy, you know, excessive amounts of copies for something that you're not sure you're going to sell through. Would it be better to test your market through an ebook? Yes. And that's something that a lot of people do because ebooks just generally have better margins because there's no printing costs. 
Um, but there's still certain segments of the market where ebooks are not amenable. I personally have a lot of experience working with children's books authors, children's book authors. Right, definitely and not for children's, children's books. books. And, you know, daycares, schools, they want to have those physical books, right? They want children to be able to touch and see and read, mm-hmm. you know, a physical book. And so it is hard in that market, I think, for ebooks. I think in other markets, ebooks are definitely uh, more popular. But even in like the educational market, folks that are science writers, for example, that write textbooks, they want a physical textbook. They want to be able to sell it to that university bookstore. They want their particular textbook to be used for the course that year. Um, so those have to be physical. Uh, I don't know. Maybe things will change because we're now in this COVID-19 time where students are not necessarily going to be in classrooms. And so maybe they will move to a more ebook position. But there's just certain market segments where ebooks haven't been as popular. Um, Thank you for that. Just getting back to some of the upfront costs. I mean, you have sales costs. You may have to pay commissions or hire agents warehousing, shipping, returns costs, and then marketing and promotion, which is a really, really huge cost that a lot of people don't realize. I think some people think that, you know, I write this brilliant book and it's just going to sell. <laughs> but if people Field don't know brains. about Build it, it and they will come or write yes, it and they will buy. <laughs> exactly. But that's a fallacy. I mean, you have to really promote and market your book Um, So there's a lot of upfront costs. And then when you look at the other side of the balance sheet, your main income is really just the net price of your books. So all the different versions. Um, And then the revenue from like bulk sales. So a lot of our authors will use services that help get their books into just some of the main chain stores, the Barnes and Nobles, the Targets, the Walmarts. Um, But you have to sell your book at a significant discount. Most of the time, uh, these bulk retailers are asking for at least 50%. The standard is about 55% discount on the books to buy them in any large amount. Um, and so you're you're losing some revenue from that side and selling in bulk. Not some. Yeah, this box, <laughs> that, yeah that big box um, scenario seems very um, similar to some of the other uh, guests that we've had, you know, in the beauty space, understanding, you know, what a big, big box store means in terms of opportunity. And then also sort of the, the, the more negative aspects of some of these deals is just really important to understand going in. So Thank you. I, I feel like I've been educated on the publishing space. There was a lot there that I, I didn't didn't know. So thanks a lot. Um, but as you talk, as you grow your business, as you grow this, um, your uh, Molo global consulting business, how are you developing your talent or employee and, and client pipeline? You know, how are you marketing and, and getting the message out there? So just to close the loop on the the financial piece, because the initial costs are so significant, I mean, if you're very disciplined and economical, maybe $3,000 to produce just one copy, one copy, sorry, one particular uh, manuscript into several copies of books. 
um, there's a significant risk in publishing. And so, as I mentioned, a publisher has to really understand the market very well. And smaller companies just cannot afford to make mistakes. Um, and so if you'll allow me, I'll just step on my pedestal for one second to talk about something that's called vanity presses, because there's a huge hatred of them in the author community. But I really believe that this hatred is actually perpetuating inequality that already exists regarding funding in, in this industry. So tell us all about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A traditional publisher actually pays you for your book. And right. so they they right. assume all of the risk, right, that it'll be successful. And they negotiate some pretty hefty royalties to make sure that they'll get their money back in multiples. However, to do this requires a huge bankroll. <laughs> and a lot of smaller uh, publishers don't have that. Even if they do have it, they have to take out loans and really pin everything on one book becoming a bestseller, which just isn't financially realistic. Sometimes books flop. And you don't want one book flopping to make you go out of business. Um, right. And, and so there's this thing called Vanity Press. It's a publisher where the author actually pays to be published. And in a lot of cases, it's assumed that they don't even vet books at all, right? Whoever has the cash can get published. Uh, that's sort of why they say it's for vanity, because it's not necessarily you've produced the best literary work. It's just you have money, we'll help you publish. Um, there are lots of authors, what, the, there are lots of quote unquote authors these days as a result of Vanity Press. Seems like anyone can do it now. Exactly. And I think that's part and of the, the hateration that you're talking about. <laughs> it is. And I, I totally agree that there are some Vanity Presses out there that they try to get huge sums of money from unsuspecting, you know, indie authors, and they will publish whatever comes across their desk. But for financial reasons, there's a lot of companies, including mine, that choose a happy medium between those two, which is called hybrid publishing. This is where you charge some clients to help them publish. You do vet them because you absolutely want to make sure you're not attaching you know, rubbish to your brand. Um, but then by doing that, you build enough capital to do traditional publishing. And then you can pay selected authors for books that are on brand and that you're willing to invest in their success. So financially, it makes more sense for a lot of companies to start getting paid authors and then move into that hybrid so that eventually you can evolve into traditional and build a client base. You then have a roster of superstar authors and you're not going to like gouge them in terms of pricing, but you do need to charge for just the time and expertise it takes to set up a book. Um, but yes, you can do it independently. You can self-publish without one of these so-called, so-called vanity presses, but you know, you can do everything independently, right? Like I could do my hair independently, but I choose to pay someone to do it because I don't have the time (laughs) or the energy, right? Um, you know, social media is free, but people pay for experts to manage the content, right? So it's not unheard of. And, you know, as I come down from my soapbox, I will just say that, you know, a lot of companies get slack for being vanity presses. And I often hear a lot of people saying like, run away from anyone who charges you to publish. And I just can't agree. It's not a fair assessment of the financing realities in this industry. And this mentality really helps to keep the big publishers in the game 
squeezing out indie competition, and it, it makes it really nearly impossible for diverse publishers to get in the game. Uh, the hybrid model makes financial sense for a lot of folks. Well, thank you so much for shedding light on that, um, especially for people like myself who don't really have a lot of insight into what goes on in, in the publishing sector to get a better understanding of the role of, 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 of those types of publishing houses and why they might choose to operate that way. And what you're saying, maybe they're starting out that way so that they can then adopt a more hybrid model as you're talking about. So I think it's just good to get that information information out there so that others can understand and not look at it as, ooh, run away, this is not good. Like there, there's a financial reason why you might want to do that, why that's a good it, thing to do. And for exactly. equity to allow other people, more people to get into the market as publishers because the traditional publishing houses are sort of like gatekeepers, right? They decide who gets to be an author and who doesn't. But now with independent publishing and these types of fantasy publishing companies, more people have access to authorship, if you will. Exactly, exactly. I, I am totally in agreement with you. And I have to say that just sort of as an intro to how to plan to grow and scale the business, because, you know, I know your podcast is all about finance and I love talking about money, but those are some of the realities in this industry when it comes to, to financing that you have to consider as you want to grow and scale. I would love to grow to being a traditional publisher. And I would love to say, Lydia, I love your book idea. Here's 10 grand. We'll buy it from you and we'll, you know, make a profit on it. But we're just not at that point. And I think there's a lot of publishing houses that are not at that point and that need the hybrid model to be able to get to that point. So Related to the talent piece of things, I have just been really fortunate that I have really awesome networks that I was able to leverage. I reached out to folks from my different alma maters, and I got some really great consultants. I reached out to other affinity groups that I'm part of, and I got really, really great consultants that came out of that group. I've done some video marketing to reach folks. I, we have a YouTube channel, and so I post videos for different recruitment things. I just posted one the other day because we're expanding our roster of graphic designers and illustrators. Um, and at present, I have about 25 consultants across different geographies. And so I'm hoping to be able to scale that up. But it's definitely a balance because you have to have a, a predictable client flow. And so we are fortunate to get a contract with a healthcare corporate. And they have you know, a consistent anticipated stream of document reviews. And so then you can sort of balance your workforce around that. Um, other areas of the business can be more sporadic, right? It, it, when someone comes up with a book idea and they want to publish, then they'll come to you. Um, actually, during COVID, we've had a huge spike in resume and CV clients who I'm assuming just kind of want to prepare for the job search when we enter into a new normal. Um, so I've been able to have access to like a lot of really super talent. And the way that I, I vet them is I actually give everyone a paid trial task. Um, I feel very strongly about that as a business owner that I like to pay people for their work. I think I just had done the DC un unpaid internship circuit for too long. Um, and so I don't want, <laughs> I don't want anybody working for me for free. Um, the scars, the scars. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I don't want people working for me for free. I, I pay everyone. 
for a child task, if they do good work, it's one of these industries that you kind of just have to give them a shot, right? Like I send you something, I want to see how you edit it. I want to see how you do. And for the people who do really well, I've been able to keep them on and keep them consistently getting projects. I think the only challenges that we've had, I actually have had less challenge figuring out the consulting regulations overseas than I have stateside. (laughs) (laughs) because there's certain states that have like, you know, weird rules. I actually had a a long back and forth with a consultant that was from California and they had just passed legislation. I think it was actually due to pressure from rideshare drivers who wanted like benefits and things. Um, But it actually made it legal that you had to hire people as employees and not as consultants. And I think it was because, you know, access to healthcare, other things. And so it actually reduced my ability to engage them as a consultant. And they would have been really great, but it made me have to do a lot more legal research, consultations with our attorneys to be able to figure out, like, how do I engage people who live in California? (laughs) Because this is something that's unique to that state. Um, But if other states take that up, it's definitely going to be something that we have to keep track of. There's not a really consistent national, at least in the U.S., policy on consulting uh, management. And so it's something that has been interesting for me to try to navigate. Well, you know, you've got you've gotten into um, some of the, the other questions that we're going to ask you. So we're just going to work around certain things. So one, you are an author yourself author of children's books, um, Escape from Baggage Claim, is available on Amazon. Tell us a little bit about that. And after that, um, this is a key question, and especially in our sector and in our field in international development, this, uh, this topic about what needs to change about who is considered an expert and what type of expertise is valued. So start with your book and then we'll get into expertise. Sure, so you're absolutely correct. I have written, I actually have another book that's coming out soon um, called The Trip of Your Dreams, check it out. It'll also be on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, But as mentioned before, diverse global stories are really of great interest for us. And much like any industry, publishing also needs diversity. Um, I think you alluded to this a little bit, Michelle, but recently, I think just in response to some of the global outcry, um, the Black Lives Matter, et cetera, a lot of major publishing houses are only now starting to say, hmm, maybe we should publish Black authors. Um, Right. And even then, I know, in 2020, um, but but even then, (laughs) I think a lot of them still want books about like race and how not to be racist and not just about black people doing regular things. And right. so still, so even when they're trying to accept us, they're still trying to pigeonhole us into these narrow categories. Like race is the only thing we can talk about. We live life just like everybody else. And anyway, I won't get on my soapbox. This is your opportunity. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> No, I absolutely appreciate your soapbox because it's something that we grapple with quite a lot in that, you know, a lot of the publishing houses that do publish Black authors assume full creative control when they take your book. So having control of your own story and narrative is something that is why it's important to have small businesses 
that do publishing, you know, finding books about Black kids who, you know, read comic books or who skateboard or who travel or who play ping pong, like whatever it is, they should see themselves represented in books. Um, Can I tell you something, Morgan? Sure. Sorry to interrupt. But just this thing about representation. So there's a, a, um, a Subaru ad now with a Black couple outdoors mm. doing outdoorsy things. And that had never been done on American TV, showing Black it's- people in that light. Black people enjoying outdoor things, Black people in the woods, Black people going to the Grand Canyon, Black people just enjoying life in full, living color, driving a Subaru. Exactly. That They never marketed to that that part of the demographic before. And I'm like, Black people do all kinds of things. We all don't live in the hood and do just these stereotypical things. We are not a monolith. We are quite diverse and we're diverse in our interests and our activities. Why are you only marketing to us about one type of thing? But anyway, back to you. No, exactly. I think you're absolutely right. And that the same goes for books. Um, And so especially for my children who are, are what they call third culture kids, they grow up away from their home. They're often in international schools. They're exposed to different languages, cultures and foods. I really just wanted to create a series of books that normalized international travel and made it fun for kids. And so my oldest daughter actually complains all the time that it takes too long to get our bags out of the baggage claim when we get to a particular destination. You know, she's tired, she's restless, like she's ready to go. And so by the time we get to that stage of the trip, she's just like, why does this take so long? So I actually took a play on that. Same, we are in the same company. I feel exactly the same. So <laughs> I ex- same here. And so I basically just took a play on that. And I did a short story about a girl who actually like ventures inside the baggage claim to find her bag only to find out that there's a troll inside who's the one that's holding the bags up. And so unless she... But that unless is she, absolutely true. It has to right. be a troll in there. That makes total sense to me. Yeah. And so basically, like, unless she answers his riddles, like she won't see her bag again. And so it's really lighthearted and it has some embedded travel tips and humor. Um, And like I said, I have another book coming out soon that is called The Trip of Your Dreams. It's about a girl who dreams about her perfect trip and really just like visiting different sites, eating different foods. And I couldn't find these types of books in print. So I, I just made them. I want to read that book for me. (laughs) <laughs> you can Forget definitely build your travel bucket list you can build a travel bucket list through this book absolutely One yeah bucket. considering so many of us have not been traveling during covid i i can i think that the adult perfect trip book might actually be a, a, a bestseller as well so yeah we'll work on it coming soon um yeah make sure we get some royalties for the idea thank you most welcome yes of course um and so in terms of just like consulting and your question about just like what needs to change it's definitely like a hodgepodge of a sector and I think there's some unique issues that I've experienced that are related to the global piece of it and there's actually still a lot of like recognizable bias that exists in dealing with international consultants I'll say international in quotes Um, Even though I'm American, you know, I'm overseas. And so sometimes I'll have contact clients to schedule a consultation 
and they'll say, oh, where are you? You're in, you're in Africa? How do I know this isn't a scam? <laughs> and I'm like, how do you know any business is not a scam? <laughs> like, what <laughs> I know. You know, riddle me this, riddle me that, you know? <laughs> exactly. Like, oh. And so I'm like, you know, Google us, you know, check our company registration, whatever. But um, so, yeah, I think there's definitely still challenges that I've seen of where folks are like, no, I don't know, really, I'm not sure about that. Um, and so I think we definitely have to break some of those barriers down because, as I said, I have talented people that are in a lot of different countries. And so if you get a client, if you get an email from one of my consultants that's in Nigeria, you get one from me in Uganda, like you should know that they're valid and that their expertise is valid and you shouldn't be questioning just based on their geography if they can help you or not. Um, so that's one thing. I'd also say that there's a difference between consulting and providing consulting services for government than for providing them for private sector. And so from my day job, I work with a lot of international projects and they tend to have just sort of like, you know, an in-group of organizations that get the grants. And a lot of them even start as small businesses. They get one grant from the government and then they're suddenly a large business. Um, and it's hard to like break into that space because they aren't necessarily diverse. And a lot of them view Black-owned businesses as just like a checkbox for their diversity bid. Um, even where there are set-asides and opportunities for small and minority-owned businesses, there's still some big businesses that will find a way to take part and make money. I'm talking like, you know, 51% small and 49% <laughs> large. Um, right. I think that consulting firms also need to partner more. Um, there's a lot of competition in this space. And so I've been really deliberate about like reaching out to others to partner because there's so many freelancers, the market is super saturated. And as long as there's like, you know, a thousand people that are like, I'll edit your book for five bucks, then it's, it's hard to like create, you know, a business platform. And, you know, $5 is not going to get you a high quality read of your manuscript it's not a price point that demonstrates the function of your expertise. Um, and so we need to partner as consulting firms to, to do better on that space. I'd also say that there's some, in the writing industry, there's sort of a, who is an expert writer? And I think, Michelle, you brought this up before, that similar to academia, people look at your publications and what you've published to say like, I'm an author, I've got 20 books on the street. Um, but they often don't look at like the back end of things, which I am actually uh, interested in more and that I've helped other people publish way more books than I've published myself. <laughs> and so there's a lot of, we do ghostwriting and I go ghostwrite books for folks. Um, and so there's a lot of folks that have, you know, digital opinions, books, blogs, et cetera, and that, use those to prop themselves up and say like, I'm an expert writer, but I know that, you know, there's companies like mine that are writing these things for them. Um, so whoever has the byline and the pen name is not necessarily the writer. And so I think the concept of expert in this space is a little bit trickier. Um, I wish we had more time to like really get into that because I, I think now authorship 
is just another layer of branding. And there are a lot of people out there now, you know, using books as a marketing um, tool and a way to claim expertise. And as you're saying, some of them aren't even the ones behind the actual writing. And then if that that book is your credibility or your claim to credibility and you didn't even create that. Anyway, there's so much more. (laughs) Um, um, I feel like we need to have another conversation about that that delves deeper into this. But my last point on this, too, is that, as I said, with diverse authors, I think there's a lot of folks who are like, I should write under a pen name and I should do this. And I always tell them, you know, if they can remember Dostoevsky, then they can remember your last name. (laughs) So if you want to be a writer that's well known, you know, put your name out there, like do do your work. And you may have to change pen names for different genres. Um, you know, if you're doing fantasy versus if you're doing sci-fi or whatever. But I think it's really, anyone can be an expert writer. And the number of books doesn't make you more qualified to do writing. Let's just say that. All right. Such a good point, Morgan. Such a good point. Um, so before we go, we're at the point in the uh, in the show where we say WTF, uh, where's the funding? Can you share um, any tidbits, um, advice, finance, resources, support, tools, anything that you think would help somebody either start a business or grow a business um, that you've come that you've that you're aware of? Sure. So the first thing I'll say, which I say all the time, and I will stand on my soapbox for two seconds, say again, is invest in black women. Please invest in us. <laughs> we need These are my claps, my finger snaps. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the second, which I think sometimes people forget, which is fund the arts. Like literature is an art form. Illustration is an art form. And I think a lot of times, especially because documents are so free flowing and a lot of people look at writing as a chore, um, and not as a as an art, but it's really it's really an art. And because we have not prioritized funding the arts in many places, people are still doing crowdfunding just to fund their books, and it's not sustainable. Um, there are grants available to writers and authors, but they're often for like small pet things. Um, so for anyone who's interested in getting to this space and looking for funding, I would definitely say check out the we, the NASA, this is the, the writer's version of NASA, um, which is the National Assembly of State Arts Agencies. And they often keep track of, across the United States, different arts grants that are available. There's also some nonprofit literary organizations that offer grants for authors um, to help you sort of get started on a particular book project. Um, authors also tend to enter their books into awards And so there's a lot of author awards that have a cash prize, or even if they don't have a cash prize, they they give you an award, they help you get some prestige that'll help you sell more copies of your book. Um, So I definitely recommend authors pursue uh, award opportunities. There are also some scholarships, if you're just interested in writing, that will help you pay for like a writer's retreat to just get away from some of your day-to-day work that prevents you from doing your writing. I'd say it's also important to partner, and I mentioned this in general just as a consulting firm, but 
Don't hesitate to team up with other writers that are in your area to sponsor events and to sell your books, especially if you guys have books that are of similar thematic area. Um, And then shop around for publishing services. Definitely work with firms that can help you take care of your needs within a budget so that you have more resources to bring your manuscripts to life. Um, Finally, I would say, I think you guys mentioned this on a previous podcast, you know, as much as we are Molo Global, you also have to think locally. And so look for others that are local in your space that you can engage. Um, Even from afar, I've been super fortunate to engage with some bookstores. There's actually several Black-owned bookstores that I've worked with in Chicago, in Tulsa, in D.C., that really support authors and publishers to bring their books into the stores. You know, publishers, illustrators, graphic designers, if we partner together, it helps to bring business to all of us. And so I really enjoy supporting them to thrive and to help them find funding for their skill set. So those are my two cents on funding in this space. Lydia, why don't you just close out the show? Because this has been quite an education for me. And I really appreciated this conversation on so many different levels. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you. It's been a huge pleasure for me as well. Lydia, take it away. Lydia? Lydia? I was signing off because I have to get on this eight o'clock, but... um. Thank you, Morgan. I appreciate it very much. It was um, really great to hear from you and best of luck with Molo Global. Um, Really excited to see you start this um, new adventure. And um, where can can we find you, Morgan? Uh, Just www.molologlobalconsulting.com. We're also on LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. Mola Global Consulting. That makes it easy. Well, Morgan, (laughs) thank you so much for your time and for all of the knowledge that you've bestowed on us. I know I definitely caught all the gems. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the WTF Podcast. We would love to hear your feedback on the show and how we could improve. So please complete the short survey in the show notes. If you would like to be a guest or sponsor the podcast, please contact us at wheresthefunding at gmail.com. You can find us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, stream or download, rate or review, and share your favorite episodes with family, friends and colleagues, and even the family dog. Make sure you follow the WTF podcast on Instagram at Where's the Funding and also follow or like the WTF Africa Edition podcast on Facebook. Also, follow your hosts, Michelle J. McKenzie and Lydia Nylander on LinkedIn. Make sure you join us for the next episode.